Welcome to Season 6 of the OME Talks Podcast. I'm your host, David Petro. OME Talks is the webinar series where on the second Wednesday of every month, we have a live webinar featuring a talk from the most recent OME Annual Conference. That means this year we'll be featuring talks from OAME 2023, which was held in April in Toronto. This podcast is the way that we preview these webinars by talking to the presenters each month ahead of their webinar. We post those podcast previews at the beginning of every month, and that's what you're listening to today. Except for the start of the season, we're going to do something slightly different. For September, you're stuck with me. That is, instead of a podcast preview, this month we're going to hear my full OME 2023 talk, Empower You and Your Students Learning with Math Podcasts. That is, I give a little tour of why you should be listening to podcasts, especially those about math. Now, we're doing this as a podcast and not a webinar because really, this is all about listening. That is, I'm going to play clips from math-based podcasts to pique your interest, so you might consider listening to the full episodes. This, by no means, is a full preview of all the podcasts you could listen to, but they are some of my favorites. And although you really are just listening, if you go to bit.ly slash oime-petro, you can see the companion slideshow for this talk, which has all the links for the episodes mentioned and more. You can find that link in the podcast description. So enough of me talking. It's time to uh, get me talking and giving you previews of some of my favorite math-based podcasts. Hello and welcome to the session on empowering you and your students learning with math podcasts. I'm going to be your host, David Petro, and we are going to begin with a land acknowledgement. We are gathered here for this presentation today, both at work and in our homes, on the ancestral lands and waters of all Indigenous peoples, including the First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in the entirety of Ontario, who have left their footprints on Mother Earth before us. While it is a well-traveled land, I would like to respectfully acknowledge that the land on which I am recording from today is the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy of First Nations, comprised of the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi peoples. We are grateful to work, learn, and live in this area. So as I said, uh, we're going to try to empower you and your students learning with math podcast. My name is David Petro. I'm uh, the vice principal at Brennan High School in Windsor, Ontario. Also the host of the OME Talks podcast. I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. And honestly, I'm going to get right into it um, as there's a lot I want you to hear today. And uh, most of it is not me talking. So what we're going to basically do in this presentation, uh, we're going to cover some podcasts that are currently airing now, some that are no longer making episodes, and some non-math podcasts that all have episodes about math or related to math, um, and some non-podcasts that you can still listen to that uh, existed before even the word podcast came about. And uh, we'll do a little bit on how to listen to podcasts, and we're going to try to wrap that all up in uh, 70 minutes. Uh, what you're basically going to hear for this session is you're going to hear uh, some excerpts from several podcasts. You're going to hear a little of me, I hope. And in the end, I hope I'm going to give you a sample of some podcasts you can listen to uh, that will help you hopefully have you listening to more of them along the way. Now, my suggestion to you is this is not really going to be a very visual presentation. Uh, this is going to be mostly auditory. So uh, if you are listening to this at home, then you might want to consider just doing something else and putting it on in the background. This slide deck is going to be available at the link bit.ly slash oime-petro. You'll see that link on every one of the slides. And the actual slide deck uh, is important in terms of the fact that it does have a lot of the related links uh, for each of the podcasts and other things all uh, linkable on the actual slide deck. So that's something you might be interested in. Uh, this, this webinar will also be available uh, to listen to as a podcast on the OME Talks podcast. So you might actually be listening to this at the OME 2023 conference 
uh, listening and watching. Uh, or you may also be listening to this as an episode of the OME Talks podcast. And again, if you're listening to that as the OME Talks podcast, great. Good to hear that you're on the podcast and listening. But I do suggest going to the bit.ly slash OME dash Petro link to get the actual slide deck as well. Now, I'm only going to give you a sampling of the podcast. Uh, there is a much more extensive list that I've made of podcasts and episodes and all kinds of things on my Ontario Math Links blog, and you, and we will talk about that a little bit later in this episode. But for now, we're going to get right to it, and we are going to get into some of our podcasts. So I'm going to start with one of my favorite interview segments and this is coming from the number file podcast now you might be familiar with the number file uh, youtube channel but there is a podcast as well where uh, he interviews many different mathematicians and math related people and you hear some more human stories about the mathematics and things in that nature uh, we're going to hear uh, this one this particular story which is an excerpt from this episode in its entirely from Cliff Stoll, and I really like his his whole being. He is totally mathematics for sure. But this is a great story about uh, how one of his elementary teachers influenced him and the links he went to to find that teacher once he was a professional mathematician. It's 1964. Our math teacher is going to teach the new math. Now, the new math is... Not like that old boring arithmetic and pre-algebra that kids are learning. No, the new math is all about sets, set theory and combinations. And my folks have never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. I'm sitting in and my teacher, Miss Voran, starts talking about what is a set and what are certain rules, the commutative law, the associative law, the distributive law. And what happens when you have a Venn diagram and you make circles and these things? That, and I'm sitting there, seventh, eighth grade, saying, boy, this stuff is squeaky obvious. Do you mean you were finding it too easy? Or? Oh, yeah, it was way easy. Yeah. It was just way easy. And this is going on through eighth grade, and Miss Foran is teaching us bit by bit by bit. I'm having a great time because I'm learning really new novel stuff that I've never thought about. Then one spring day, sitting in English class, an English teacher says, you know, some Greek philosopher has pointed out that there's no rule so general, so universal, that it does not admit to at least one exception. So I'm sitting there in English class, and 20 minutes later, find myself in Miss Foran's math class. She's talking about the commutative law. You know, A times B equals B times A. Up goes my hand. Miss Foran, Miss Foran, Mr. Lama down the hallway. He, he said there's no universal except, except. And she says, you're right. The commutative law has an exception. And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. And she says, it's hard to describe what it is, but I'm going to assume that you're asking a real question, namely, What's the exception to the commutative law of algebra? And so she begins by saying, a matrix looks like this, and draws a matrix of two by three matrix on the chalkboard. She says, right now, this matrix doesn't look like it's useful, but I can make another matrix next to it, and I can multiply the two together. Matrix A times matrix B, and I can get matrix C. She points out just how you do matrix manipulation, how you do matrix multiplication. And she says, not telling you this for any test at all. I'm telling you this because you asked a good question. Three times seven is the same as seven times three by the commutative law. Matrix A times matrix B does not equal matrix B times matrix A. The commutative law doesn't apply. And I'm sitting there listening. I'm, this stuff is just soaking into me. I'm sponging it all up, and I'm thinking, where would you use a matrix? What is it? What's it for? Bless her heart, she continues. She describes places where you'd use it. You know, you could measure temperatures on different days and multiply them by something. And, and so I stash it in the back of my mind. Continue on, junior high school, get to high school. Sure enough, at the end of high school, taking a calculus class, and 
teacher starts talking about linear algebra and mentions, oh, in blah, 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 matrix, blah, blah, blah. I hear this ping in the back of my mind. This neuron fires. It says, oh, I've heard of these matrices before. They don't commute. And I raise my hand and say, oh, they, they don't commute, do they? And my high school math teacher says, wow, you know about this, don't you? And I say, no, not really. I just know. And I remember how they multiply. So get to college. Up comes linear algebra again. Up comes these matrices all over the place in physics. I get to grad school and boy, they're all over the place in physics. And every time I see one of these matrices, I remember this day in eighth grade where Miss Foran introduced this absolutely weird and wonderful concept to me. So I'm finishing up in grad school. My dissertation is, of all things, to define the scattering matrix for the cloud particles in Jupiter's upper atmosphere. In other words, when sunlight falls on Jupiter, the clouds in Jupiter's atmosphere scatter the light in different directions. What direction does it preferentially scatter into? And if I can understand, suppose a lot of the light gets forward scattered, I might be able to say something about how big and what shape are the particles in the clouds of Jupiter. You might be able to say, oh, is it a ammonia crystal? Is it a methane crystal? Can I separate the two by looking at the scattering matrix? And these matrices are all over the place. And I'm fooling with this matrix. And I keep thinking, thank you, Miss Foran. Thank you to my eighth grade math teacher who went out on a limb and spent all of 15 minutes of class time to introduce me, this little pipsqueak in the front row, to matrix algebra. So it finished this. And I think to myself, you know, I need to thank her. I want to go back and say thanks to this woman. So I go back, try to look her up, Miss Foran. Where are you? She's in no phone book. She's not listed any place in Buffalo. Eventually, oh, 10, 15, 20 years later, a new century comes about. Matrices, they're no longer this cool new thing that shows up in physics. They're my old friends. They're friends that are helping me figure things out. I can't look at an Excel spreadsheet without thinking about matrices. And I'm thinking to myself, I owe this woman a deep thank you for going way beyond the call of duty. Cliff, did you find her? In 2014, I said, okay, I've actually put in some time looking for Miss Foran. I'm going to find out where she is, put my spade into the dirt, going through county paper records. Finally, early 2015, it's now, what, 50 years since I took this class? Yeah, 50 years since I last saw her. I find Oh, I think there is a condominium in Florida that has her married name attached to it. I call up the condominium manager who says, oh yeah, that was sold. You might want to call so-and-so in Minnesota. So I start calling everybody with this particular last name in Minnesota. 13, 14 phone calls later, I call up this guy and say, I'm looking for Miss Foran. The guy says, Huh? You ought to talk to my wife. 30 seconds later, this very, very familiar voice gets on the phone and says, hello? And I say, I'm looking for Miss Foran, who used to live in Buffalo and taught mathematics. And I hear over the phone, yes, this is she. I say, you don't remember me. You don't have any idea who I am. My name is Cliff Stoll. Fifty-some years ago, you taught me the new math. More than that, you taught me the commutative law. And deeper than that, you showed me what a matrix was. And she says, oh my God, I have followed your career across the decades. I saw you chase down this computer hacker. I read your books. I always wondered whether you were the same kid that was in my eighth grade math class. I wondered if you were the same clever, interesting kid that I taught so long ago, but I never knew how to reach you. And I mail a Klein bottle to her because of all people, she'll appreciate a Klein bottle. Back comes a letter. Back comes a letter postmarked Lake City, Minnesota. You've got it there. It says, Dear Cliff, this letterhead 
Buffalo Academy of the Sacred Heart is where I went to high school. What does she say in the letter? Like, what's the gist of it? To the, at the very end, thanks again for looking me up and giving life one more interesting twist. I'm really enjoying it. Take care. Signed, Mary, her first name, in parentheses, Miss Foran. <laughs> I know, of course, she hasn't used that name in 52, 53 years. And in this letter, she says, I now have credibility with my grandkids because they can see you on YouTube. You, you did a TED Talk. You wrote these books. And they're impressed with me because I was your eighth grade math teacher. What's cool about it isn't. Oh, yeah. I learned about matrices. No, everyone in math and science and physics and chemistry and biology knows them. My feeling deep inside is that I have a responsibility, and I'd sort of like to extrapolate and say we have responsibilities in general, to pass along our appreciation to those people who have done good things for us. So that was Cliff Stoll on the Number File podcast. And of course, you can watch the Number File YouTube channel. If you want to hear this full episode, you'll see the link there on the side called This Episode. And you'll kind of see those links as we go through the rest of the clips here today. So our next story comes from a podcast that's not really about mathematics. It's called uh, People I Mostly Admire, and it's from the Freakonomics Radio Network. I actually love this podcast in the sense that the, the interviews are with people I normally don't really have a connection to, but they are fabulous interviews and, and very entertaining and very, uh, you learn quite a bit. Uh, when you when you uh, listen to them. But this particular episode, I was uh, familiar with Stephen Strogatz, and you might be as well. He's written several books, uh, written for uh, many, many different uh, outlets. And I like this story because it's about how he was not always the greatest at math. And it really talks about how he struggled when he got to university. And so I, I like that bit about this story. And so, again, we're going to hear uh, some excerpts from that story of within the, um, the whole episode. Uh, so it may not have all the bits to it, but uh, hopefully you get the gist of it. And then at the top of the high school hill was calculus. That's what math looked like to me as a teenager at that early stage. But then when I went to college, I started to hear about subjects that I really didn't know a thing about. Linear algebra. What was that? So I got dunked in the cold water first semester of freshman year with a teacher who really shouldn't have been teaching freshmen. <laughs> you know, this was really not someone comfortable being around people. No question he was an exceptionally great research mathematician, but had no social skills. Didn't give us any idea what linear algebra was about. He just went straight into the subject with definitions, theorems, proofs, more definitions. And, oh man, it was dreadful. And I started to understand why people have math phobia, because I used to feel myself getting really nervous before tests. I could barely do the homework. When you ask about, did I end up where I was because I bombed out of the other options? Yes and no. I did really badly in that first course. And I think that course was intended to weed out, to use that awful expression that people sometimes use. I came to feel like a weed. I got very discouraged and thought, maybe I don't have the right stuff to be a math major. I tried again with sort of the whiz kid second semester course because I was placed in the whiz kid first semester course, but I was getting crunched in there too. And my advisor fortunately said to me, well, you don't have to keep taking this stuff. Maybe you would like the math that the engineers take. So I took that and I could do that all day long. That was easy <laughs> and I loved it. But I also liked some of the pure math depending on the teacher. What was missing from that first course was intuition. It wasn't visual enough. I couldn't picture what was happening. So just bumbled my way through, but I didn't realize it until by the time I graduated that what I had loved all along was applied math. Anything to do with the real world scientifically was interesting to me, but especially the math that was lurking underneath reality. That I really loved. So you say bumbled through, but you did graduate summa cum laude, so you couldn't have done too much bumbling. I did actually bumble through in that all my lowest grades in college were in math. I never actually got a B in anything except math. And I got several, including B minuses, and I was lucky to even get some of those. I just 
had the good fortune to work on a senior thesis about DNA. I had asked what I thought was the closest thing to an applied mathematician in the math department to supervise my senior thesis. I ended up having a very good experience. I actually made real inroads on a genuine scientific problem using math. So that's why they graduated me summa cum laude. But I do remember my advisor said to me, why'd you have to do so badly in so many courses? <laughs> you really made it hard for us to give you summa, but your thesis was so good. So let's talk about that first problem you ever worked on, which relates to how DNA is arranged within ourselves. But okay, what did I do? I had started out just my math advisor gave me some questions about DNA. Some of my friends said, hey, we have an expert on DNA packing over in the biochemistry department. You should go talk to Abraham Worsell. I went to talk to him and I gave him my first idea for something to work on, which was so ridiculous that he literally laughed me out of the office. <laughs> it was the proposition that DNA is not really a double helix. Okay. I had mathematical reasons for saying that, but he said in his Argentinian accent, if you write your thesis about that, it will be a laughable matter. <laughs> he kicked me out of there, but I went back with another idea and he said, oh, you again, you know, this is also not a good idea, but if you really want a good problem, here's the problem. And so he started to describe this certain question to me, but I said to him, I could do that problem this afternoon. And he said, no, you cannot. <laughs> Did you hear me? This is the unsolved problem that everyone's breaking their heads on. That was the phrase he used. And I said, I know, but I know how to do it. I'll show you tomorrow. So Worsell had a model of the chromatin fiber, a mathematical model. And he said, I think this is how nature does it, but there's something about it that I can't calculate, which is a mathematical number called the linking number. Can you calculate the linking number for my structure? And that's what I said to him, I can do it this afternoon. And he said, I don't believe it. But I knew how to do it because I had read an article by Francis Crick of Watson and Crick fame about this chromatin fiber problem, where Crick pointed out, if you go to a store and you buy a piece of ribbon, and then you make a model out of ribbon of the DNA winding pattern, one thing I should say, don't picture ribbon with free ends. The ends of the ribbon have to be joined together to make a loop like you would do with your belt. So anyway, Crick's point was, if you make this ribbon into the shape that you want and then lay the whole thing down on the floor and flatten it out, you could just count how many twists there are in the ribbon. That would give the answer to the question he was asking me, what's the linking number of his structure? Okay. So if you picture your belt and you put a few twists in your belt before you close the buckle, those twists are locked in there. And no matter how you deform your belt, the number of twists is fixed. If you try to untwist part of it, it'll make more twists somewhere else. In math, we would call that a topological invariant. The number of twists that cannot be changed, it's invariant. Anyway, the point of the story is, I went out, I bought the ribbon, I made the structure, and it ended up that Worsell's model agreed with what was known about the linking number of DNA as it was measured. So when I told him this, he started jumping around the room, literally <laughs> hopping up and down. And he said, this is going to be big. You don't understand. This is a big problem. This is going to be big. And so it was big. It got published in the biggest biology journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's why they gave me summa cum laude. I solved this big problem. But I didn't do it with my brain. I just did it by being a person who makes connections. I had read Crick's article. I understood the implications. Did you literally do it in the afternoon, like you promised him? Yeah, I did it that day. Why did he have any confidence he would actually computed the answer properly? <laughs> You're the same guy who just argued that DNA was not a double helix. <laughs> well, he didn't believe me. I had been a crackpot in his eyes until that moment. He said, you got to show me how you did that. So I said, fine. And I went back to my room and I got the ribbon and I came back and I showed it to him. And I said, remember Crick explained this in his 1976 article. He said, yeah, he read that article. I mean, he and Crick were friends. So I said, let's do what Crick says to do, but we'll do it for your structure. We did it together. He took the ribbon out of my hands. He did it himself. But then he said, we can't publish this. You can't explain to people, make a ribbon model of the structure. You've got to give me a mathematical proof. <laughs> so once you know what the theorem is, it's much easier to find a proof than if you don't even know what you're trying to prove. So I did have to work on that. And then I did come up with a proof and I showed him the proof and he said, okay, that's it. And after that, 
whenever I would show up at the lab, he would come running over to me and his grad students looked at me like, who's that undergraduate? What's going on? <laughs> we'll be back with more of my conversation with Stephen Strogatz after this short break. So there's Stephen Strogatz talking about his time beginning uh, his career really as a mathematician. He's also got a great podcast called The Joy of X and, of course, several, several books that you can uh, read as well. One called The Joy of X. And we are going to move on. Now, this is probably one of one of my first really favorite math-related podcasts that wasn't on a math podcast. This is a story about a single number, the Iraqi death count, and all the aspects that go into, went into the, that number, this controversial number that came out. Now this actually, uh, this episode aired almost two decades ago, before really there was a podcast. This is uh, when it was just a radio show. And uh, this is on the radio show and podcast, This American Life, which itself is a great, great show. Uh, excellent stories, well-researched, and and uh, a wide range of topics. So let's hear the, the beginning of this, and uh, I'll jump in in the middle to sort of uh, to, to get us close to some other bits in the story. The fact is we have no idea how many civilians have died as a result of the war. Nobody counts. Not the military, not the State Department. The Iraqi Ministry of Health for a good while early on in the war was compiling morgue figures from across the country and making them public every week, but that practice was stopped. These days, the place that most people go when they need a figure is a privately run nonprofit website called IraqBodyCount.net. It gets its figures by going through newspaper articles and other press accounts and simply counting the number of people reported dead in those articles. Even the people who started the site and who run it today freely admit that this method gives you a huge undercount. At best, it's a minimum. The true number could be much, much higher. One of the producers of our radio show, Alex Bloomberg, started looking into all of this. And he found something surprising and disturbing about the death figures and what we know about them. Here he is. Everyone will tell you, counting civilian casualties in wartime is hard. First of all, you need to do something called a large-scale mortality study. And second of all, you need to do it in the middle of a war zone. To date, in Iraq, there's only been one attempt. It was a Johns Hopkins University study, published in The Lancet, a British medical journal, in late October 2004, a couple of days before the U.S. presidential election. It concluded that probably 100,000 Iraqis had died as a result of the war. This figure was astonishingly high, ten times higher than any casualty estimates at the time. Even today, a year later, with all the extra deaths that have happened in that year, no other estimate comes close. Just this week, the New York Times ran a story based on the Iraq Body Count website that's estimating civilian casualties at a fraction of that number. 30,000. Since the Lancet study's figures were so high, and the study itself got almost no traction in the press, I remember thinking at the time it came out, it was probably bogus and slanted. I'm guessing a lot of people, if they even heard about the study, felt the same way. But recently, in trying to figure out how many civilians have died in the war, I've learned more about the Lancet study. And the more I learned about it, and the remarkable story of how it was done, the more likely it seems that the 100,000 figure is actually the best estimate, and if anything, low. Before the Iraq study, the main thing I was known for and that I had testified in front of Congress for was documenting how many people had died in the war in the Congo. This is Les Roberts, the lead author on the Lancet study, one of a handful of scientists in the world who could be called an expert in counting war dead. In the Congo study, he found that 1.7 million civilians had died from the war, a figure cited by Colin Powell when he was Secretary of State and Tony Blair on the floor of the British Parliament. Les has also done studies in Burundi, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone. To a guy in Les Roberts' line of work, the war in Iraq had a number of unique and interesting things that deserved study. The main thing that distinguished this war was that the military took unprecedented care to avoid civilian casualties. Almost two-thirds of the bombs dropped were precision-guided, as compared to just 8% in the first Gulf War and 0% in World War II. They limited daytime strikes and avoided civilian infrastructure, like power and sewer plants. Compare that to World War II, where American forces firebombed entire cities as part of the military strategy, killing up to 100,000 people in Tokyo alone and upwards of half a million civilians in Europe. And you can see why George Bush called the Iraq War one of the most, quote, humane military campaigns in history. But Les knew that often it's not bombs and bullets that kill people in war. It's the other things that happen when society falls apart. Clean water and medical supplies get scarce. In a lot of the studies he did in Africa, diarrhea killed more people than weapons did. 
women can't get to the hospital to deliver their babies, so infant mortality rates go up as well. And let's pause here a moment to talk about their methodology, because when the study came out later, a lot of people wanted to believe that it was flawed or biased. In fact, the survey team used a standard methodology for measuring health and mortality over a geographic area. It's called a cluster sample survey, and it works like this. Using the most recent census figures available in Iraq, the team made what was essentially a map of the population. They then used a random number generator to pick 33 points on that map. Baghdad was the biggest population center, so it got several points by itself. But the other points were spread all over the country, from the Kurdish north to the Shiite south, from small towns to big cities. Once they'd picked a town, though, the team still had to figure out who to interview there. Here again, they worked hard to leave everything to chance. Using GPS units, they would drive around the outskirts of the town and store the coordinates, creating a rough outline of the town border. They would then generate a random point within that border, drive to it, and interview the 30 nearest households. It was such a commitment to random sampling that the first few times the team did it, even the researchers Les and Riyadh were working with found it obsessive. It was very annoying to them, because here they are in the car, they're out, they're feeling like they're at risk, and they'd be driving around for a long time to get to the extremes of a city and draw their map mm -hmm. before they interviewed the first house. They're like driving around and not getting any work done, they felt. And, so, th and this uh, is all just to make it as scientifically valid as possible, right? Like this is a way of picking houses without any sort of preference for safe neighborhoods, dangerous neighborhoods, near the highway, far from the highway. Um, it was a way of sort of transcending human laziness so that, <clears throat> in essence, every household in Iraq had an equal chance we would visit them. Mm -hmm. And that is, in essence, the definition of random. So why didn't it get any press? Partly, it was the timing. The study came out five days before the U.S. election, and so the media was pretty preoccupied. And there was one other thing that made it easy for the media to dismiss the report. A researcher at Human Rights Watch, who himself had done studies of civilian casualties during wartime, said he didn't believe the study. The researcher's name was Mark Garlasco, and he told a reporter for the Washington Post, quote, the number seems high to me, and quote, it seems like a stretch. Uh, I was actually on the Long Island Railroad when he called me. It was uh, sometime in the evening, and I had yet to read Les's report. This is Mark Garlasco. He said he told the reporter from the Post that he hadn't read the study, but the reporter said he really needed a quote, and could he just respond to the number? Garlasco's quote was cited elsewhere, and he appeared on CNN, although none of the study's authors were interviewed on CNN, or any of the major networks. Here's what Mark Garlasco says now. First of all, I'm not a statistician. I know absolutely nothing about it. And when I then went and spoke to statisticians, they said, oh, no, you know, the method that he's using is a really accurate one. This is something that we use in, uh, in studies all throughout the world, and it's a generally accepted model. And that kind of made me think about it, think about, you know, my prejudices going into reading his report, because, you know, I had been on the ground in Iraq immediately after the war. But I also had taken part in the targeting for the war. So that wraps up what we're going to hear from This American Life and what's in a number. Uh, just a great story on a single statistic and all the human aspects of where that number came from. Now, I am going to throw in a few like this one. Uh, this is uh, from a series called Five Numbers and then another five numbers and then a further five numbers. And there's so 15 episodes all about sort of 12 to 15 minutes long, each of them about a particular number. So in the first series called Five Numbers, they talk about pi, zero, phi, infinity, and i, and then they go on to talk about other things. And this is hosted by Simon Singh, and we're just going to hear a couple of minor clips from this. It's not a podcast, it's just a BBC recording, and so you can still listen to these online at the, the main website. Twenty-two minutes past seven on Triple J. Adam Spencer with you. Let's have a look at the weather around Australia. Canberra sunny and twenty-five. That's five squared. Alice Springs fine and twenty-two. Two times eleven. Perth fine and sixteen. That's two to the power of four or four to the power of two. It's the only number that can be written in reverse power format like that. Leonard Euler proved that one. Anyway, let's have a song. Adam Spencer of Triple J Radio is the only man I can think of who went from studying for a PhD in mathematics to becoming a DJ and hosting the biggest, hippest breakfast show in Australia. Adam, as it happens, is a big fan of zero. Once you get to certain areas of mathematics, the use of a zero does become 
important, both in ease of notation when you're writing fantastically large numbers. For example, if you want to describe the number of particles in the universe, you could write a 1 with 80 zeros after it, or you could just write 10 to the power of 80. All right. right. Yeah, yeah, because also when you get to 100 in, in Roman numerals, you have to invent this new letter, C, and so on and so on. Whereas with zeros, you can just use nine digits and rearrange them, and you don't have to you constantly haven't. reinvent new numbers. It's a favourite project of mine, a new value of pi to assign. I would fix it at three, for it's simpler, you see, than 3.14159. Pi is, first of all, I should say, a big hello to pi, probably the sexiest of all numbers. You know pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. So how far around a circle divided by how far across gives you pi. And ever since people first started to think about mathematics or geometry, pi has been one of the most fascinating of all numbers and applies in so many other areas of mathematics and geometry, of engineering, of physics. And it's driven some people absolutely mad in their attempts to understand it. Mathematical disc jockey Adam Spencer is a big, big fan of pi a number that appears in the weirdest places. For example, take the sort of windy rivers that flow across gently sloping plains. It's not exactly clear why, but measure the actual length of a river, divide it by the distance from source to ocean as a crow flies, and the result is, on average, pi, 3.14. Not surprisingly, such an omnipresent number even has its own day, March the 14th, the third month and the 14th day. But, as Ian Stewart... I love Adam Spencer. He's a, a, an actual mathematician turned ex-radio DJ turned podcaster. Uh, and if you can find his, his stuff, that's, uh, that's great. But just a little excerpt about the number zero and some other things there to give you a sense of the style of this uh, little podcast. And again, I'm not even calling it a podcast. It's actually a radio show that was on the BBC. Now, I'm not actually going to play an excerpt here. I was going to, but I just don't have the time. Uh, there's a couple of podcasts that are co-hosted by Matt Parker, who's also known as Stand Up Math on YouTube and elsewhere. And these are some really weird and wonderful podcasts that aren't necessarily about mathematics, but they often bring mathematics in to explain the topic. One thing I will say that the newer one of the two podcasts is A Problem Squared, where they take a couple problems and they talk about them. Uh, I find the banter at the beginning a little bit long, but once you get into the podcast, some really neat things. And then the, the Festival of the Spoken Nerd, where they have a theme for the a podcast of unnecessary detail. And then each of the three hosts, including Matt Parker, then talk about a very thing that they're interested in in an, in a necessary level of detail about that theme. Great stuff that uh, I think you would really enjoy. Now, I am going to focus on a few podcasts that are about teaching math specifically. And first, we're going to hear from Making Math Moments That Matter. And uh, this is sort of a podcast and a website and a resource site. And we're going to hear a little excerpt here uh, from episode 215. I'm curious, what does the consolidation or the connect part of your lesson look like for you? In the sense that I'm trying to see that the problem is presented, kids are working. And then when you're seeing solutions, what is your move next? So when we're doing that, it's a whole group. So everyone's doing it and you're taking suggestions from the yeah. big group and you're maybe modeling that up on the board from what I the am. group is, make, is saying? It's a no pencil time. I don't want you writing on your paper. I don't want you figuring out stuff on your paper. I want what's to talk about it. And everything I'm presenting is things that could be done with mental math or with estimation and we could get there. So that's how it's presented. The pencils weren't always like a, a no at that time, but I saw a lot of kids that were still going with the one way that they knew. And I really wanted them to focus on not so much getting it right and getting it done quickly, but how else can we do it? So you're bringing these strategies from them and maybe are you interjecting with any ideas yourself in that same math talk time? I am happy to report that I've been able to kind of pass the torch somewhat and we're getting better at it. It's been probably about two months since I started really asking them, like, let's look, how can we rearrange this so that it looks like an equation that we're used to solving? Right. And if it's any kind of repeated addition, I'm like, no, what else can we do? What's more efficient? Those poor kids are like, oh, this guy is talking about efficiency again. Right. <laughs> like, what can we do? Right, right. And so what I'm hearing is you're feeling some successes in small pockets here. This is often something that we think about when we have pebbles. And I think about when I have pebbles is I ask myself, like, what does it make me feel like what I'm doing isn't the right thing? What isn't working? Because you're describing some great moments here, but you're still going like, oh, it's not it. But how do you know it's yeah. not it? You know, I'll see 
like today I had a student that was doing 30 minus 28 and we got 12. And I know that if they'd have just been like, oh, if I'm at 28, I only need two more to get to 30. And if they'd have just thought about it a different way, we wouldn't have needed to even write it down to do it. But we did. And then that brought in struggles with regrouping. And it just showed an underlying issue that is is bigger than just the regrouping, just the not understanding the relative values. And they have more skills that they can use. And they're just kind of stuck in a rut. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally doesn't. I'm wondering, I want to dig just a tiny bit deeper into, let's say, the actual problems students are solving here. I'm curious, would you say that the problems are typically with context? So like a contextual problem where there's, we'll call it like a story problem where these quantities are representative? Now, of course, if you are listening and you are probably listening to podcasts about mathematics, you're probably listening to this podcast already, and it's one of a number on teaching mathematics. Uh, you also might want to check out their their virtual summit, which they have every year as well. Go to their site. So many resources that you get for free. There is a paid part as well to get even more detail. But uh, just to give you a little snippet of what you might like to hear on that podcast. One of the things I like about their podcast is they often take a teacher from their their listenership who has a problem and they try to discuss what the solutions of that problem are and and it's a it's a really neat neat concept another one that i like that isn't around anymore is called math before breakfast and this is more uh, middle school elementary type math topics that uh, these two friends who are teachers they used to just talk about this on their morning run and then they decided well we talk about these teaching these topics why don't we make a podcast about it and so it's really informal they talk a lot about how they did certain things and how it went in class and so you know some things didn't go well some went okay and they and they talk about how they plan to move forward from that it's a really neat running conversation that you might find. And we're going to hear a little bit from this episode on fractions. I wanted to trace it. And I'm like, no, just lay it there. Leave it there, you know. And then after that, there was a whole list of other things that they could do with their number that would um, kind of see where they are with other tasks. So the first one is, can you just model it? Can you make it? So talk to me about what tools there are. So when a teacher's looking in her closet. Okay. So, and, and I... I will just honestly say that you might not have all of these, but these are the ones that I pulled out. I had the circle fractions. There's like this little plastic set of, you know, the whole and the halves. Um, and then I have the same thing with with squares. So those are both area models and they're made out of plastic and, and each smaller piece or it's a different color. I have fraction towers. Um, is that what you call them? I think they actually have a real a different name. But so fraction towers of like stick together like Unifix cubes. Yeah. I yeah. have fraction bars. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Same. Basically the same thing. Um, I set out Cuisinier rods, which if you've never used them, the idea of Cuisinier rods and fractions is that you always have to determine which piece is the whole, and that's pretty cool because it can change based on what you need to do. I set out um, yellow and red counters, hoping that some of them would do a set model, you know, like two out of three are red, something like that. Um, I set out number lines, like I just printed blank number lines. I'm not sure anybody actually ever used those, um, but that's okay. And I set out um, something else that's not coming to me at this point. So I am thinking about my closet. What else I, do you have? Well... The little foam squares that were... Oh, I put those out too. Okay. Yep. yep. The red, yellow, and green. Right. Because they can kind of do set or area with those. Right. Pattern blocks. That's That was the one I that wasn't okay. coming to me. Yeah. So the hexagon, most of the time the hexagon will, or when you start, will be one whole. And then the blue rhombus is one third and the red trapezoid is one half. Why are you laughing at me? Sounds like some kind of uh, nerdy Lucky Charms. Right. I got a blue rhombus <laughs> and a yellow parallelogram. <laughs> and, a... um, and then we, um, Ruth and I both have an additional set of pieces that you can get where the, it's half, if you're picturing the red trapezoid, half of that is brown. It's still a trapezoid, but it's one fourth of the whole. And then they make purple, tiny little right triangles that make half of the green triangle. And those are twelfths if the whole. That was mind blowing when I discovered those oh. pieces. 
So, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember another one. I sat out base 10 blocks, and I didn't think anybody was going to take me up on them, but one girl did one-eighth correctly with base 10 blocks where she like had – Like she did .125? Yes. Yes. Wow. And, and based on – you know, we we kind of talked about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. I remember. It, you, you know, yeah. um, it was so amazing. She had something else first, and I wasn't going to be like, no, that's wrong. I just was like, tell me about that. And – she goes. So like I said, this podcast isn't in production anymore, but you can still listen to it on their website and you can still download it on various pod apps, but uh, it's still worth a listen. And I, and I, I quite enjoyed uh, the, their podcast as it was when it was running. This is by no means the last or only other podcast about teaching math. Uh, it's just the only one we're going to look at today or here today. And this is uh, Pam Harris's Math is Figure Outable which is really uh, about the idea that uh, you shouldn't memorize stuff, but it's all about the problem solving and how to really go through that. And we're going to hear an episode in this case, a piece of an episode. And uh, just to get you a sense of how Pam and her partner talk about uh, a particular topic and how they walk through the thinking on that. Saying 10 divided by 9 is 1 and 1 ninth. Yeah. Say that why again? Because nine how many, can fit. How many nine nines fit, are in ten? You're thinking about how many nines are ten. Sorry to interrupt. Yep, that's okay. So nine can fit into ten one full time. And then there's what left over? There's uh, a tenth left over. I think there's one left over. Yeah. No. A tenth of a tenth, a tenth of ten is one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um. So it can fit into 10 one time and uh -huh. then there's one left over and then uh -huh. nine can only fit into that one left over one night. One yeah. Ninth. It can't, it can't, yeah. it, it can't fit the whole time. It's just one ninth. Can only get one oh. ninth. Yeah. Yeah. There's only, yeah. That's it. That's, that's crazy kind of like that reasoning, is, yeah. right? That's interesting. Yeah. So I have on my paper written 10 division sign nine yeah. equals one and one ninth. Yes. I also want to remind us that we've some sometimes we can write ten divided by nine as ten fraction bar nine. Yeah. Ten ten ninths. Yep. And is ten ninths equivalent to one and one ninth, like you just reasoned quotatively? Yes. It oh, is. Sure enough. Sure enough. So a couple different connections that we can make. Now I kind of forced you to think quotatively. And you were like, all right, I can think about how many nines fit into 10. And yeah. well done think, doing that. But we could also sort of that connection between division and fractions. We can think mm -hmm. about 10 divided by 9 as 10 ninths. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Nice, nice thinking. All right, ready? Next problem. 10 twelfths. So the fraction 10 twelfths divided by 9 twelfths. 10 twelfths divided by 9 twelfths. 9 twelfths fits inside 10 twelfths one time. With some stuff left over. With some stuff left over. And there's a twelfth left over. And nine twelfths can fit into one twelfth and ninth. Like it really doesn't fit, right? It's only it doesn't only get, fit. It's, it's only it's fit. One, yeah, it's yeah, that one. Um, left but over. you know what would have been like a little bit easier for me? Okay. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> if I if I had thought about the problem before. Uh-huh. And what we kind of just talked about. Yeah. Um, and 10 twelfths, the, the, the thing is the twelfths. So 10 something, 10 twelfths, divided by nine something, nine twelfths, is going to be the same. Now, of course, I if you are into Pam Harris, you also, and are on Twitter, then you might want to check out uh, the Math Strat Chat, which is a hashtag. Uh, you'll see the link on the left-hand side there where she posts a, a math idea and then uh, everyone posts their 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 discussion of those. Uh, so math strategy chat uh, that happens, I think, once a week on Twitter. That is great. And she also, also sort of summarizes those on the podcast as well. Her website is Math Figure Outable. It's got a lot of resources. And just to finish off, we're going to hear from her one more time, just giving us a little short clip about chat GPT. Like, well, maybe for you it doesn't, but for, for, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib. Um, I think anybody is honestly, I, 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 when I've seen what it can do, I'm honestly going, okay, let me think about this. So it's not, it's not trivial, but I do think if, if our goal is to create 
help students develop their their mathematical reasoning and brains and the way they think and and the and the the paradigm they have for mathematics i think we're good um that it, it will only be a help to us but it is it is worth talking about now uh, also on uh, ai right, so we're not going to hear this one but another podcast that has a lot to do with uh math in the world is carry the two and uh, I've sort of linked to an episode here that has a lot about AI and some interesting things there that you might want to hear how they connect to mathematics. And in this show, uh, one of the things I like is that one of the hosts is just a librarian in a high school. And so he is, uh, although quite knowledgeable, uh, quite naive on some mathematics topics, and he's great to have in the interview to ask very uh, relatable questions to some of the guests who are all you know, math-related. So uh, it's a nice sort of mix between the host and the co-host here of this podcast. But again, we're not going to hear from this one. We just don't have the time to tear all these clips, but I just wanted to point them out. Another podcast that we won't hear from, but I do want to point out is Stats and Stories, where, as the website says, they, they hear the stories behind the statistics and the stats in the stories. And so they often take many, many uh, topics. You can see them here, uh, economics, education, entertainment, and so on. And they uh, have the experts on them relating to the statistics and the stories behind those things. Uh, the one that I'm highlighting here is about rom-com movies and uh, female uh, scientists in rom-com movies. So that if you want to listen to that episode, you can click on that episode. Another one we're not going to quite have time for is the Debate Math Podcast. And uh, here, Chris Lisniak uh, is, was really started this idea of debate math where you would have the students in his class take a topic and use the rules of debating to talk about both sides of that topic. And so in this, in this podcast, he actually has teachers most of the time going at it uh, on a topic, you know, should we teach quadratics? And one will talk about why we shouldn't, and one will talk about why we should, and they'll do it in that debate format. He's also got a book up for debate, which talks about this strategy and how you can use it in your class. And I've highlighted an episode, which again, we don't have time to listen to, on whether you should allow notes on tests. And in this case, he doesn't have teachers making the arguments. He has students making the arguments. So it's kind of a, a neat little listen there. So that's the Debate Math Podcast. Now, if you are all into statistics and numbers in the media, then you really should listen to more or less. This is a uh, BBC podcast and radio show hosted by Tim Harford. And they take the numbers in the news and they explain them, why they are big numbers, why they are small numbers, why the number is meaningful or not meaningful, and they take it out of the news headlines around the world. And in this particular episode, they do a really, really great uh, talk on how surveys can be biased just by what's in them. And there was a correspondingly steep rise in those identifying as British only, from 19% of people to more than half the population. Spurred by what seemed this extraordinary reversal, Timur decided to investigate. Could this change be due, he wondered, to how the question was worded? He decided to check the census forms for 2011 and 2021. Sure enough, while the question is worded identically in both surveys, how would you describe your national identity, the first option in the 2011 survey is English, while the 2021 survey has the first option as British. The answers have traded places from one survey to the next. Another reversal that perhaps helps explain the other. Timur wanted to know why the ONS had switched the order and whether there was a better way to do things. I put Timur's questions to Ailsa Henderson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Edinburgh and co-director of the Future of England survey. She's one of several academics who've questioned this change in the order of the multiple choice responses. Our listener, Timur, thinks that there's been a big shift in the proportions of people describing themselves as British versus describing themselves as English because the ONS changed the order of the possible responses in the census. Does that strike you as a plausible explanation of what's happened? Yes, it does. And I think your listener is absolutely correct. I think the scale of the changes we've seen in England are unlike what we've seen so far in the Welsh data 
or in the Northern Ireland data. And we know that the order of responses provided to individuals absolutely matters in multiple different contexts. Why does it make such a big difference which option is listed first? When we're asking individuals to evaluate things from lists, we know that the response order matters. We know that this is true in a number of different contexts. So we know in elections, for example, when the lists of candidates are ranked by alphabetical order, that candidates with last names in the first half of the alphabet tend to do better. So we know that there's a... So that's a little clip about uh, how just rewording the surveys can give bias in your results. Now, again, that's the more or less podcast, which uh, you really, really, should. that's a really great, great uh, podcast. Now, uh, Tim's got a few other podcasts that uh, you might want to listen to. 50, favorite, 50 Things That Made the Modern World, the Modern Economy, great. It's actually, I think there's 100 episodes now of that. Uh, that is, and they're all like 10 minutes long, you know, the pencil, why is the pencil important? You know, that sort of thing. And then Cautionary Tales, where he takes a, a true story and he talks about uh, what happened wrong and what we can learn from that. Uh, also great podcast, not to do with math, but um, definitely one episode there where he talks about uh, statistics for sure. So the Shortwave podcast is mostly a science podcast. It's a daily podcast where you get these episodes that are 15, 10 to 15 minutes long about a science topic and sometimes mathematics. And what uh, we are going to hear is an excerpt from one on the earthquake, the recent earthquakes here. And they're going to talk about this uh, representation of the logarithmic scale. We have what's called the moment magnitude scale. And that takes into account things like the rigidity of the rocks that break, how far the fault slips, you know, different parameters of the earthquake itself. And so um, it's still a logarithmic scale, which makes it really unintuitive to people. We don't tend to think in, in logarithms ever. And so I, I talk about it a lot with something I call the spaghetti magnitude scale. So if you imagine breaking one strand of spaghetti, then that's a magnitude five, say. You would have to break 32 strands of spaghetti to be a magnitude six. And then you would have to wow. break more than a thousand strands of spaghetti to be a magnitude seven. So it's not like the difference between a magnitude five and six is the same as the difference between a six and a seven. And so what we'll mm -hmm. see, even though like in earthquake sequences like this, you know, you'll have all of these aftershocks, the majority of the energy that's released is released by that largest main shock. Mm. The takeaway from this is that the difference between a magnitude six and a magnitude seven is profound. And the amount of energy that's released by these earthquakes is really uh, quite mind -blowing. So in my summary of podcasts, I try to list some of the episodes that are mainly about mathematics in, in this uh, podcast, but really a lot of great topics about math and science you'll see here. So in this last clip, we're going to hear from the podcast called Math Therapy. And in this podcast, the host, Vanessa, she usually talks with people who struggle with mathematics. They, and she does do some interviews as well, but struggle with mathematics and talk about their struggle and how to get through their struggle. She actually runs a, a tutoring service called The Math Guru. And uh, in this particular episode, however, this is more recent um, for Pi Day, she actually spent it in a prison, and we're going to hear just a little excerpt of her talking about that experience. So we're driving, and like, keep in mind, it's so early in the morning, it's kind of dark, and I want you guys to imagine this, because I think I still have this image in my head of how alarming it was, that like, we're driving, and it's like a small town, and we're like, oh, I wonder where the prison is, and then all of a sudden, like, imagine like Jurassic Park theme song music, and all of a sudden, it's like kilometers of barbed wire, but like that razor wire, like just silver glaring razor wire and like the biggest, like hundreds of giant floodlights. And we were just like, we're here. And it's like sprawling. There's like all these buildings. But like it was just so alarming to see that silver razor wire, so much of it, so much of it, and these giant, giant, giant floodlights. Okay, so we get there and like we get checked in. We meet Dave Dirks, who's our amazing facilitator there. We get checked by security. I'm sure you all want to know what that's like. And they did check under our tongues. So we had to like open our mouths, look under our tongues, and we had to take our socks off. Oh, and we weren't allowed to bring anything with us, like not even a pencil, not even a key. I was allowed to bring in my chopstick. Thank God. Okay, we go in 
And we walk into basically what looked like a high school auditorium and there are the inmates. And like they're seated at tables like in rows as though it's a classroom and they're just sitting there silently. Um, Well-behaved seems like a really weird word to say, but that's like the first thing that struck me. Like I don't know what I expected, but probably like something from Orange is the New Black because what else do I have to go on? And they were just sitting there smiling. We went in, we put our stuff down and I was like, guess we'll start. And basically I just, I don't, I can't remember what I did, but I do remember I started by just being like, I just want everyone to know that I'm really nervous right now. And they all laughed and I was like, okay, they're laughing at my jokes. This is a good sign. Like everything's going to be okay because that's how I usually feel when someone laughs at a joke of mine. And so we started, we started and basically the structure of the day was I gave pep talks. I talked about growth mindset. I'll tell you more about that later. But I basically just talked about why we were there. I gave mathematical pep talks. I talked about math anxiety. And then it was interspersed with video chats from Gary Gordon and Sunil Singh. And then Ben, Ben Jeffers, our pal, taught the math. So I'll talk about a bit more about the math he did. But he did like Hilbert's Hotel, the infinity thing. And then he did another math problem with him. And we actually did math. We ate pie, we drank coffee, and then it was done. And then after we were finished the event at 10.30 in the morning, we got a bit of a tour. We learned some stuff about Bellamy Correctional, and we left immediately, got in the car, hit the record button because we wanted to capture exactly how we felt the second we left. Okay, we just came from the prison, (laughs) Bellamy Correctional Facility. We're leaving the park. Okay. So as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about how to listen to a podcast. Now, of course, on just about all of those sites, you can uh, podcast, you can go to those individual sites and listen to them online and all and search all their episodes. I strongly suggest listening to podcasts on your phone while you're cooking, while you're doing the dishes, while you're driving to work, uh, all those places while you're going for a run. That's all the places that I typically do that too. And depending on your device, you might listen on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. I think Amazon Music has their podcasts as well. All kinds of different places to find most of these podcasts. And uh, I'm going to give you one pro tip when listening to podcasts. Because it's just information, you might uh, want to play the podcast at a little bit faster speed. I got to learn this from my kids. I actually play my podcast at 1.5 speed and that way I get through them a lot faster and get that information that I'm looking for a lot faster. Of course, as I said, I'm the host of OME Talks and just to, to tell you what OME Talks is, if you don't know, uh, you're seeing this or hearing this because of OME, the OME conference. And what we do on OME Talks is we take some of the sessions from the previous OME conference and we put them on a podcast for a little brief interview. And then we do a webinar for those uh, for our OME members. Now, the podcast is free for everyone, but the webinars are for OME members only. But uh, we are five seasons in, and you can go to our website, talks.oime.on.ca, to hear the list of podcasts that we have. Uh, Or, of course, you can get them on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play. Now, I've actually been listening to podcasts for years. In fact, the first time I did a version of this, this presentation was in 2007 at OME. And over the years, I've collected all these resources and links of podcasts and radio shows about mathematics and you can find them here on this site Uh, they are organized into about four groups one uh, podcast or episodes about teaching mathematics podcasts about mathematics itself episodes and podcasts related to mathematics and then some miscellaneous episodes uh, of other podcasts that just happen to be about math so you'll see those in this list here And that just about does it for me. Um, I hope you got something out of this and got uh, some uh, podcasts that maybe you haven't listened to if you already listened to podcasts. Or if you haven't listened to podcasts yet, this gives you some impetus to start that. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always get in touch with me at uh, davidpetro314 on Twitter or davidpetro314 at gmail.com. You can also see me on my blogs. I publish every week on Ontario Math Links where I 
post links about all the math stuff I found that week. I post that every Friday. If you like data, then uh, I've got a site called Found Data where I take data sets and collect them to use in statistics classes. And then uh, a site that I made with my former teaching partner, Giselle Jobin, called Engaging Math, where we've got oh, maybe 150 to 200 activities from paper and pencil to digital, from Desmos to uh, GeoGebra and Apple and all kinds of other things on there as well. Uh, so you can get those at Engaging Math uh, or engaging-math.blogspot.ca. Anyways, I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference. And if you're hearing this on OME Talks, on the OME Talks podcast, then I uh, hope that you enjoy the rest of this season. Well, that was me giving you some previews of just a small portion of the math-based podcast that you can listen to. Again, the slide deck for this talk can be found at bit.ly slash oame-petro. And the full list of math-based podcasts that I have can be found on the podcast tab of my weekly math blog, ontariomath.blogspot.ca. Of course, all those links can be found in the description. And next month, we'll start with a regular set of podcasts and webinars with Robert DeRoche talking about learning math from the land, art, and environment, holistic considerations, stories of math, storytelling, and holism. For the full list of episodes this season, go to talks.oeme.on.ca. And of course, all these links are in the podcast description as well. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll see you next month.